deeply and more powerfully in us as children in His family. We want to know Him more. And so today I'm introducing a verse for 2019. It's a verse that we will look out throughout this year, a verse that I want you again to commit to memorizing, commit to living out in your life in, in real and tangible ways. And this is a tradition that will continue as far as I'm concerned here uh, until Jesus comes back. And so our verse for the year is Acts 2.42. You have that printed on your card. And before we look at it, I want to give you just a little bit of context. If you know anything about the way we uh, do teaching and preaching here is that we just go straight through books of the Bible. So to jump into verse 42 of chapter 2 of Acts just causes all sorts of grief in my heart because we've skipped over a, a whole bunch of Acts already. But we're going we're gonna to do that. And so I'm going to give you a little context. In Acts 1, we see the resurrected Jesus ascend into heaven. You might remember that scene. He's there on the side of the hill, and it says that he was ascending and that uh, most of them worship, but that some doubted. I've always wondered what they doubted as he was flying up into the sky, but that's what happened there. And he tells his disciples, what he tells them, that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what he told his disciples. That is the global mission strategy that Jesus leaves for his church is that you and I, we are witnesses. So whether you are in Lexington or West Columbia or Irmo or Chapin or Montgomery, Alabama, it doesn't matter where you are, you are a witness. The strong, the weak, the short, the tall, the young, the less young, right? Um, Don't want to offend anyone here. The bold, the fearful, all of you are witnesses. And then Peter in chapter 2 preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost. And he says this, this is verse 23, if you want to follow along. This is, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. If you thought Peter was going to be nice to the people there, you thought wrong. He goes at them pretty hard and says, You killed him. This Jesus, you killed He's not taking it easy on him. He's just laying it out there. And then he says, this is verse 24, that God raised him up. So you killed him. But what we know as God's people is he didn't stay that way. You killed him, but God had other plans. And he says, this is verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. So not only are we witnesses, but we are witnesses with a specific message that this Jesus God has raised up. And that's where we're going to pick it up today. Would you stand with me now? And let's look in Acts 2, just to give you a little more context. We'll start there in verse 37, and we will go through uh, 42. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I would ask you to come here this morning, not that you need my permission. You, you've promised that you are wherever we have gathered, 
And so I pray that what you would do is by your Holy Spirit come and, and open our eyes this morning. Come and give us ears to hear. I pray that you would come and awaken our souls out of the drift of this life that we might, that we might be here intentionally with you this morning that you would focus our minds, that we might hear from you, that we might know you more, that we might serve you in this life. And I pray that you would speak powerfully now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there it is, Acts 2, 42. And we see that those who believed... That's what it says, that those who believe, those who were added that day, those first fruits of the witness of the disciples, what we see is that even though it wasn't a formally established congregation, it wasn't an organization with, with bylaws, even though they didn't have everything together, they didn't have a building to meet in. In fact, the only building they had been used to meeting in, they're no longer allowed to go and meet in. They didn't have volunteer t-shirts, right? They didn't have a nursery rotation. They didn't have a worship leader. They didn't have any of that stuff. But they did have some things in common. And what we're told right there in 42 is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Those are the four things that we're going to look at here together this morning because those four things serve as the framework as the framework for how the early church functioned as the early church. And what we're told is that they devoted themselves, the first thing, to the apostles' teaching. Now, the word there for teaching is the, is the Greek word uh, didache, okay? Now, we, I don't do Greek words a whole lot up here, but I'm going to share that one with you. And what it's talking specifically about is the content of the teaching, okay? It's not about the style. It's about the substance, it's not about the package, it's about the contents. On, on New Year's Eve, like many of you, we had uh, some folks in our home, and Laurie broke out um, the, some of the fancy glasses, okay, for, for the midnight, right? So we could cling them together, right? And it was awesome. And so our house is a little young, and so we had some of that uh, white sparkling grape juice. You familiar with this substance? All right. Um, and so you put it in there, it looks like champagne. The kids all raise a glass. We, along with them, with our sparkling grape juice, and we cling the glasses together, man. Happy New Year. Ding. And I'm just praying they'll happy New Year and go to bed because I'm that, at that age at this point. And so uh, we, we weren't ready to cling the glasses. And so then everybody takes a sip and uh, you know, everybody you get their pinkies up because it's fancy, right? It's New Year's Eve, man. This is, re- this is the real thing. And we looked legit okay like if we had this was this was social media worthy glasses if you had the right filter on that thing it could go viral okay but universally everybody takes a sip pinky immediately drops and they put the glass down because that stuff tastes pretty bad okay like everybody in our house immediately goes no all right, that's not it. Well, I'm, I'm like, I refuse to just waste stuff. So I drink all the glasses of grape juice. And I can, I can confirm for, I was like a Catholic priest at like a wedding, right? You just got to drink it all because it's got to go, got to go away. Well, I, I drank it all and it never got better. It just tasted the same with each sip, all right? But see, it looked fantastic. She had it all sitting out on the counter. It was like, man, we are like grownups, right? We're, we're doing this. And, uh, and, and, but it was, it was bad. What was in the glass wasn't worth it. So much of our world today is settling for the appearance of it rather than the substance of it. We're settling for the cheap 
Instagram post of it rather than living it. It looked great. It looked like the real thing, but the contents of the glass wasn't real and it wasn't good. For the early church, appearance did not matter. It was the content of the message. It was the teaching. It was the substance of it. This is what these believers, this is what the early church devoted themselves to, what they, what they committed themselves to. That's what to be devoted to something means to, to, to be committed to it, even when things go bad. That I'm devoted to a cause. I'm devoted to people. I'm devoted to my Lord and my Savior. You see, they were devoted to the teaching. It was the truth that Peter focused on there at Pentecost in his sermon, the truth that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem, to restore, and to renew His people for their good and for His glory. That's the content of Peter's message. Derek Thomas points out that, the, that from Peter's sermon, it's clear that apostolic teaching on Jesus Christ uh, as a person centered on two features. The first is that Jesus is the Christ. That, that means that He is the anointed one. It's the Hebrew word Messiah, okay? He is the seed who will crush Satan's head and deliver His people from the consequences of sin and death. I know that's a mouthful. I'm going to say it one more time. That He is the seed who will crush Satan's head and deliver His people from the consequences of sin and death. It's that He is the one who sets us free. That's what it means to be the Christ, that He sets us free because He paid the debt that we have earned with our sin. That's the basic gospel message right there, that Jesus died for our sins so that we might live in Him. The second focus of the teaching is that Jesus is the Lord. We've talked about this the past month with our kids as we were going through Advent and, and, and where we were in our catechism together. We've talked about the Lordship of Jesus. And here it is. It's that Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. Yes, there's going to be a different ushering in when He returns. But even right now, He has not relinquished His kingship over the earth. He is ruling and reigning right now. It's all summed up there in verse 36 where Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, this is Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the teaching. And to be in the kingdom is to submit to Jesus as king. You, you can't have it, you can't have it both ways. You can't say Jesus is my Lord and then not have him as your king. Or you can't say Jesus is my Savior and then say, yeah, but I'm not going to submit to His Lordship. It doesn't work that way. It's both and all the time. That's what we proclaim in Christ, both a king and a kingdom. That's the first thing they devoted themselves to. The next thing they devoted themselves to is what Luke calls the fellowship. It's the word koinonia. If you were in the church back in the 80s, I promise you, you heard the word koinonia because somebody created a program called koinonia and every church had koinonia groups and, every, and, and then they got tired of saying that so they just called them K-groups, right? Because what are we without acronyms, right? And so this is, this is what the church has been historically. But koinonia means the fellowship. And what he's talking about here, very specifically, that word, is about sharing in life together. It's about having something in common. The literal translation for that is in common. That's why Koine Greek, if you've ever heard that term, Koine Greek was the language of the New Testament. Koine Greek was common Greek. It was the common language. And we're called to be koinonia people. That's what the fellowship is. Far more than an event that we attend. 
far more than a designated time or place where we gather together. The fellowship is a true and deep relationship. And the, the two clearest examples, to give you an idea of what he's driving at here, are that of marriage and the church. That's the idea behind koinonia. Because you see, Paul uses that same word in Philippians 1.5, that word for fellowship, to describe what he calls their partnership in the gospel. Partnership is the same idea as the fellowship. It's an active participation, not a passive association. And Luke unpacks this for us down in verse 44, where he says, this is in, this is in Acts 2, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. All who believed were together and had koinonia. That's what he's saying. You see, that's an active participation. Every relationship that you will ever have will require two things. They will require both effort and sacrifice. That's just how it works. You cannot have a true relationship without those two things. Those are non-negotiables in every human relationship. In fact, we even see that in relationships that are not human relationships. Like to have a dog in your home, right? Anybody? If you have a dog, your commitment is that I'm going to give effort and sacrifice because I don't know why I allow an animal who would go to the bathroom on the middle of my floor if she decides to, to live in my home. That's foolish, If you were to tell that to somebody, yeah, we've just got this animal and we just let it live in here. In fact, it sleeps in a bed beside our chair, but every once in a while it goes to the bathroom in the middle of the floor. Why would you allow that to continue? Right? I mean, and yet we do this. Effort and sacrifice for the sake of, we have a wiener dog, guys. It's not even something you can be proud of. It's just a little, little wiener dog that runs around. It's not like a Great Dane or something majestic. It's not a golden retriever who fetches stuff. Our dog, she understands, go to the bathroom and come inside. That's it. That's all she knows. And yet we sacrifice for this animal. We have this type of koinonia fellowship with this animal. This is so sad. It's because of the common unity in Christ that these people begin to live having everything in common with one another. The Apostle John wrote, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you. That's the teaching, right? That's the didache, what we proclaim to you. We proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. This is what the Apostle John says. The reason we're proclaiming this message is so that you can be brought into fellowship with us. And then you know what he says? He adds to this, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, fellowship with one another is what necessarily flows out of fellowship with God. And it's not passive. So what the author of Hebrews is talking about in Hebrews 13, 16, where we're told, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Did you hear that? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is why I have never killed a dove in here. So I will never ask you to bring a sheep. I will never stand before you with a knife and kill any animal and tell you now there's a sacrifice that's pleasing to God because that's already happened at the cross. The once and forever sacrifice happened at the cross where the Lamb of God who takes away our sin was killed for us. And so our sacrifices today are to, according to Hebrews, to do good and to share what you have with one another. Can you believe that? What that means is that we're to love one another. It means that how we fellowship with one another is a pleasing sacrifice to God. 
And we're told in John 13.35, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will. John 13.35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. That's what he says. This is what it will look like from the outside world. They will look at you and go, they must love Jesus because look at how they love one another. Look how they practice this. I truly believe, I want you to hear this. I truly believe that God is glorified in us in a very real, and a very genuine way. When we gather here on a Sunday, on a Lord's Day, and we join our voices together in singing, we join them in prayer, we join them in confessing the faith, we join them in confessing our sin. That's why we go to great effort to choose, choose, to choose songs that aren't just frothy spiritualism. I, I wanna, like, have you ever considered why do we sing a psalm every Sunday? Because that one was hard. I want to just be honest with you. Even to a rhythm that I recognized, I found it hard to, to sing. I don't... I don't use some of those words constantly. Sometimes it's difficult. It's usually the quietest song that we sing each week because we don't know them. How sad that God has given us a hymn book and it's the one that we don't know each week. That's not a guilting, by the way, at least I'm hitting myself. We sing the Psalms because it's the song book of God that he's given to us. And we're commanded to do it. That's why we sing each week a psalm, a hymn, and a spiritual song. We want to make sure that we're being obedient to what God has told us to do in His worship. This is why Gregory works with great energy and effort to find songs that don't sell us anything that isn't true. And that's difficult. I I want you to know that. I'm going to boast on my guy here just a second. It is difficult to find songs for 52 Sundays a year that aren't cheap, that aren't shallow, that aren't weightless. I know some churches who have very limited catalogs of songs because it is very difficult to find good ones to sing. And don't think because it's in a hymn book that qualifies it. I believe that the musicians who help lead us each week are doing a good work, and I believe that that work makes glad the heart of God. And that's not a little thing. I believe that God smiles, I genuinely believe this, that God smiles when our musicians come up here on a Wednesday night after it's dark, especially this time of year, and they come into this room and there's kids running around because we don't have the budget for child care and because it's, it's just that season of life for our church. And they are up here practicing using their own instruments, using their own God-given talents to practice in order to lead us well. But I also want you to hear this. I believe that if our worship is limited to these 70 minutes a week, we are absolutely failing in our calling as his people. And so just to level with you here, one of the distressing trends in the church today is the lack of commitment to the Lord's Day. Okay, so... For so many who would call themselves Christians, who would proclaim the name of Christ and claim His righteousness for themselves, weekly corporate worship with His people has degenerated from, it's degenerated into more of a possibility rather than a priority. We've turned it into an optional activity which has marginalized not only our relationship with the church, but our relationship with God. James Montgomery Boyce the pastor from 10th Prez up in Philadelphia said this, if you find yourself out of fellowship with God, you will begin to find yourself out of fellowship with other Christians. But if you come close to God, you will inevitably find yourself being drawn close to other Christians. And it works the other way too. If you spend time with other Christians, if you share a great deal with them, that fellowship will help draw you closer to the Father. Can I encourage you to be careful this year? Like, don't fade 
I know it's, it's the first Sunday in January. You've got a long way to go. Don't fade from the fellowship, but pursue it. Prioritize it. Devote yourself to it. Because, well, to be honest with you, we need one another. Because we need one another and because it brings joy to our Lord and our Savior. Next, we see that they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, some people hold that this is an explicit reference to the Lord's Supper. Um, and it's tempting to hold that view. That would certainly be convenient this morning, um, but, but I don't believe that the text allows us to, to, to limit it in that much. What I think he's talking about here um, is something far less, far less formal and far more organic. He's simply talking about eating together. Do not neglect the breaking of bread. You see, there's just something about eating a meal together, something that is rapidly being lost in our culture today. This is one of the reasons that we encourage our community groups each week to share in some form of a meal. And I want to level with you. I'll tell you a couple of things that happen every single week in our community group. The first is this. At least one of the kids in the group, we've got a few, one of the kids in the group and maybe one of the adults will not like the food that is being provided, okay? The kids, they'll make that stuff known, all right? That's going to be a public outcry against whatever's in the pot or whatever's on the plate, okay? I don't like this. It's going to be a little awkward and we make it. Now, every once in a while, one of the adults gets real bold and they mention it too and they get to do dinner the next week. That's how that works for them. Most of them will pretend like they had a big lunch and that they aren't hungry, right? If it's something they don't like, oh, it just really still is full. Um, but that's, that's just how they kind of go. Every week, this is something else, every single week, those of you who host, you know this, somebody, maybe an adult, maybe a kid, somebody's going to spill something every single time. Somebody is going to spill something. It might be soup. It might be sweet tea. Every once in a while, it's salad dressing, and that stuff's hard to get out of the carpet. Whatever it is, something will hit the floor, okay? And at our house, that pathetic wiener dog I told you about, he's going to come along and try to help, okay? That's just how that works out. And, and by the way, she knows who the spillers are, all right? As soon as they walk in the door, her tail starts wagging. She said, finally, getting something to eat tonight. That's how our dog functions. Every single week, we have to clean up after we eat. Every single time. That's a rule in our house, okay? If you eat there, you're going to help clean. That's just part of it, all right? So we have to help clean up after we eat. It's a mess, but it's a rule. We clean up. Now, here's the thing. Each one of those opportunities is a chance for us to get to know one another a little better. It's a chance for us to encourage one another a little more authentically. I hope you have a good week is about as deep as, as, as saying, hey, I'm fine. Have a good week. How are you? I'm fine. I mean, that's basically where our relationships seem to land a lot of the time. But if I'm on my hands and knees trying to soak up sweet tea out of your carpet with you, me and you are now friends, right? That's how that, that's how that goes. We need one another. And every time we gather is an opportunity to truly rely on one another. It's not always easy. And I promise you, it's not always convenient. People, people are the most inconvenient species that has ever walked the planet. But most of the important things in life are not easy. Most of the important things in life take planning and take commitment. It takes prioritizing. It takes what, well, it takes what Luke here calls devotion. Because we believe that the fellowship of the saints 
is vital to understanding what it means to be a follower of Christ. And here's the last one. They devoted themselves to the prayers. Prayers is what we would call a, a reverent petition. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. You know, most of the early church ministry, their, their ministry looked a lot like our situation today. Uh, they didn't have a big building to gather in. They didn't have a bunch of planned and orchestrated community outreach events. They didn't have a massive budget to work from. They didn't have stage lighting and fog machines. The truth is that from the world's perspective, the early church didn't have a whole lot going for them. From the world's perspective, they have even less than we do. But, and, and this is critical, what they had was a true understanding of their reliance on God. And I don't know that I can overemphasize this. They had a true understanding of their reliance on God. And when they gathered together in their homes, which is where most of their ministry took place, they devoted themselves to prayer. As one commentator said, they, they were not content merely to talk with each other. They also talked with Jesus Christ. We try to demonstrate our reliance on Christ here every week in worship. Over the course of our worship services, during the 70 or so minutes that we are here gathered together, we will pray no less than five times. That, that's a weekly reality for us. I've had people on the way out say, man, y'all pray a lot. Like visitors, it's awesome. I think that's the greatest compliment. I don't know how they mean it, but I take it as a compliment, right? Y'all pray a lot during your service. Yeah, we, we do. Because we know that without God's hand in everything that we do, we will accomplish nothing. We give these reverent petitions. We lay them before our Creator, trusting that He alone is not only able, but eager, eager to help us. Because it is He who has sent us out as His heralds into the world. John Piper has said, The reason the Father gives the disciples the instrument of prayer is because Jesus has given them a mission. I love the fact that Piper calls prayer an instrument. You know what you do with instruments? You use them. You might play them. A tool is also an instrument. You know that the violin hanging on this music stand is an instrument for worship. It's also a tool to be used in worship. The piano sitting here is a tool or an instrument that we use for worship. The microphones, the voices, these are all tools and instruments that we use. You know what you use tools for? To accomplish a task. Otherwise, they're just decorations. Tools are meant to be used. The reason the Father gives His disciples the instrument or the tool of prayer is because Jesus has given them a mission. He's giving us something to do. Early in our marriage, I failed miserably in leading Laurie and our kids in prayer. And now listen, I, wanna, I want you to know this because I, I, I think your heart is probably similar to mine. I don't wish that on you, but I think it probably is. Prayer, especially private uh, family marital, spousal prayer, whatever you call it, is one of the most difficult things to engage in. It is so hard to lay your heart open before God in the presence of someone who knows all the stuff you should probably really be praying for. Like they really know your baggage. But I also know my dependence I know that I am not strong enough to handle this life on my own. I know that I am not smart enough to make all of the right 
calls, I know that sin is crouching at my door even right now and that my heart is just as capable of, as yours of running away from Christ every single moment of every single day and pursuing the desires of the flesh. And so I know, I know that I am dependent on God to hold on to me because, as I tell my kids, my grip just isn't that strong. I know that about myself, and the the greater thing is that God knows it too. One of the great questions of every generation is the simple question, who am I? You'll find no clearer answer to that question than when you lay your heart open to God in prayer, because he already knows you. Tim Keller has said this, that prayer is the only entryway into self-knowledge. That prayer is the only entryway into self-knowledge. It's because when we are exposed in prayer... Before a God who knows us, it's then that we can truly begin to know ourselves. And this makes the grace of God all the sweeter to those who come to, who come to know how genuinely foolish we are. Flannery O'Connor said this, It does not take much to make us realize what fools we are, but the little is long in coming. I see my ridiculous self by degrees. You see, we must be a people devoted to, to prayer if we will ever be a people who are truly devoted to God. Because the second great question, the one that moves out from the who question, the one who moves out from the who am I, is the why am I here? Every single person will will eventually ask that question, why? But see, we know the answer. Those who have received the grace of God in Christ, we know the why already. We are here to glorify our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. We know the why. We know why we exist. Can I, husbands, like if you're a husband in the room or a future husband, if you're a man in the room, let's just do that. If you're a male sitting in this room right now who may or may not be a husband one day, lead your family in this. If that family right now is one person living in your house, fine, lead yourself really well in that. Lead your families in that. Wives, spouses, encourage your husbands to lead your families in this. Don't let them off the hook. This is the one area where you can go, hey, did you hear what he said? And you start doing that. I need you to do that in my house right now. Encourage them. Hey, children, kids in the room, don't let mom and dad put you to bed without praying for you and with you. I'm giving you license right now to hold them accountable on that. That if they say, all right, good night, and shut the door, no, ho, ho. You heard what he said. Just text me. All right, we'll FaceTime them in there. We'll do a full-on guilting for mom and dad, all right? You do not let your parents end the day without praying with you or starting the day praying with you or at some point praying with you. Hold them accountable to that. It's okay. I promise you that is a way that you honor your father and mother. Pray that God would be glorified in your lives. Pray that he would sustain and protect you throughout the day. Praise him for the truth that even though we are more sinful than we might ever care to believe, In Christ, we are more loved than we could ever dare to imagine. As a church this year, we want to live out this verse. We want to live out this ethic in our lives. To be committed to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. To the breaking of bread and the prayers. These are practical and tangible things that we can do as a people. And as you do that, invite others into it with you. Invite others into it with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father,